Hello, I'm Jonathan Moyes, Head of Investment Research at Wealth Club, and today we're talking about investing in AIM shares for inheritance tax purposes. Now, as the UK's junior stock market, AIM contains a diverse mix of more than 800 companies, and these can range from mature family-owned businesses to innovative growth-focused companies and even some billion-pound firms with global revenue streams. Now, as well as offering investors the potential for attractive long-term returns, certain AIM shares also qualify for inheritance tax relief if held for more than two years. And AIM shares can also be included within an ISA, giving investors three tax benefits in one. Now, with inheritance tax bills hitting a record high of £6.1 billion last year, it's perhaps no surprise to see AIM portfolio services in high demand from wealthy investors. But is now a good time to be investing in AIM? And what should investors consider before making an investment? Well, joining me today to discuss this are three experienced AIM fund managers. We have Chris Pease from Whitman Asset Management, Stephen English from Stellar Asset Management, and Joe Cornwall from Puma Investments. Hello, welcome all. Welcome to the studio. Um, first off, I thought we'd start at the very beginning. A uh, question for you, Stephen. Why does the government do this? Why is it giving inheritance tax relief to, uh, to investors in AIM shares? It's, it's quite a well-worn piece of legislation. It was introduced uh, in 1976 uh, when it was known as business property relief. Uh, originally, to avoid family businesses having to be broken up to fund a onerous tax bill. Um, and then it widened since the 90s to include limited companies and then including AIM shares, which are classed as unquoted, to use the jargon. So even though they're listed on the stock exchange, they are not listed on the recognised stock, stock exchange. So it's known as unquoted. So AIM shares are qualifying. Why? Uh, there was some doubts that it should apply to AIM. I know the Office for Tax Simplification were casting some doubt because yeah. the original legislation was never brought in to qualify for AIM shares. But my my rebuttals of that was income tax was brought in to fund Napoleonic War by William Pitt the Younger. I'm not sure how the elder felt about it, um, but we're still paying in income tax today. Um, I think Napoleon's no longer a threat to us. So while it was never its original intention, it certainly provides growth capital to these fast-growing businesses that create a disproportionate amount of jobs to the economy. And in terms of their contribution, the AIM market as a cohort contributes as much as the pharmaceutical and defence sector does to UK GDP. And you've got national insurance, PAYE. So any sort of IHT benefits, multiple payoff for the government um, from this piece of legislation. Finally, what I'd say is by us being able to invest in these AIM companies and support them, we help lower their cost of capital. So it makes it easier for them to raise uh, equity uh, to grow their businesses through acquisitions. And again, it's all coming back to these dynamic uh, companies with a lot of vitality that are growing quicker and investing a lot in R&D and innovation, which is all for the betterment of UK PLC. So a key part of the UK's industrial strategy. Absolutely. And Joe, welcome. A uh, question for you. What type of person would invest in a main portfolio service? Uh, there, are th there are three common types of investors for an AIM portfolio service. Uh, the first one is someone who is of, of ill health and who is, who is concerned about lasting the seven years where, where gifting rules come into force. Mm -hmm. So they might use an AIM service as a means to sort of as to narrow that to, as to narrow that time frame. Uh, could it, could be also be powers of attorney where 
they've got a, they've got an estate to, to look after and they think, well, and they're more switched on to the use of AMRHT and AIM portfolios. Uh, the second category is someone who wants to retain control and flexibility of the portfolio uh, so that they don't want to gift it away in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And the third category that's the most common is for people who are selling a business so they can recycle the capital from selling their business into, a, into an AIM portfolio and that retains inheritance tax relief. That's a very good point. And Chris, do investors just invest in AIM for the inheritance tax benefits? No, there are a lot of reasons to invest in AIM other than the inheritance tax benefits. Um, essentially, it's one, the AIM market is one of the world's leading small cap uh, markets. Uh, it started from really quite small beginnings back in 1995. Uh, but now there are over 800 companies listed on AIM, many of them are international companies. Many actually w wouldn't qualify for AIM inheritance tax relief, but it is one of the uh, preeminent places for uh, listing your shares. If you're a family-orientated, growth-orientated company, you want to be able to uh, realize a public value for your shares and you want to be able to raise money comparatively easily going forward to grow, to grow your company. It's relatively cheap to, 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 to list on AIM. It costs around about 200,000 to do that. Uh, and uh, listing your, your company shares on virtually any other market in the world would cost far more. So that's why AIM has been so successful uh, starting over uh, about 1995 with just a dozen or so companies. Now there are over 800. And the London Stock Exchange typically give themselves quite a big pat on the back saying how brilliant they are to have thought of AIM and to have nurtured AIM over the last 25 years. So if we just go around the table then, uh, you will invest in the AIM market. It's very broad, 800 plus companies. Um, Stephen, if we could start with you, what types of companies are you backing within AIM? Thanks for letting me go first because we're all probably very similar in our requirements, what we look for in business. Um, Profitable, so not story stocks or incinerating cash, uh, ideally some degree of track record and ability to allocate capital well. Um, a lot of CEOs are founder entrepreneurs. They don't actually understand the machinations of a stock market. So we spend a lot of time educating on which levers to pull from a capital allocation point of view. Uh, but we also want to see cash generation flowing through. Profit isn't a profit unless it is actually cash. We prefer market leaders. They tend to have pricing power. That tends to give them more profit to reinvest within the business, be that R&D or an innovation, and it helps put more and more clear water between them and the number two, three, and four in the market. And that, that focus and that founder mentality, it creates really an insurgent attitude almost for the customer. Uh, they almost want to delight the customer, uh, better, faster, cheaper, and something I look for in particular, 85% of the portfolio is business to business orientated rather than business to consumer. Believe it or not, the consumer is a capricious beast. Uh, there's fads, there's, there's sentiment shifts, as we've seen with the online retailers in particular. Uh, it's gone from feast to famine almost overnight, whereas business to business, they don't have to spend anywhere near the same amount of marketing dollars to promote their brand. It's all about relationships, which tend to endure for decades. So that helps really provide a resilience that you get. You don't really see as much with business to consumer. That said, everything does have a price and we're very, very sensitive to, to valuations and you know, risk is ultimately a function of price. And Jay? Well, I think Stephen, Stephen uh, said that quite well in terms of we have probably have quite similar approaches. So I won't sort of echo all the points he's made, but many of them are similar for Puma. Uh, 
I would, of course, highlight that we are looking for profitable businesses with good management teams. But I'll just probably focus in a bit more on, on cash flow and cash flow generation. Um, we're looking for businesses with, with got recurring or repeatable revenues and they've mm-hmm. got stable margins. So that, that can help protect cash flow. Also, they've, probably, they've not got great cap- levels of capital intensity. Um, so they've not got to invest in plant and equipment to grow their sales, to grow their top line. Uh, and we're looking for, again, businesses with pricing power, sort of patents, IP. It means that they can, they can tend to uh, manage their cash flows better. We're looking for a, a good dynamic between the chief exec and the FD. So we find some chief execs, their owner founders, the FD can be somewhat trodden on in some cases. We want an FD who can exert, exert their authority, manage the working capital well, which is often often a bit of an issue in smaller companies. Mm-hmm. Managing the working capital can, of, can often be an issue, and, and, and institutions will punish them if they, if they have poor working capital. Um, but I, yeah, I, th- I think that's what we look for, sort of good cash flow generation, profitable companies, good management teams. And Chris, perhaps more of a growth bias for you? I think, yes, we are growth orientated on our aim portfolios as we are on our, on our smaller cap fund, which we run too. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we like companies uh, as the others do, which are profitable. I don't think we've mentioned dividend paying yet, but uh, we definitely like companies that pay dividends. I think it's um, a sign of a, a grown up company where the management can actually wave goodbye to some of the cash rather than keeping it all in the balance sheet to pay inflated salaries or whatever it might be in their own, own, own companies. Uh, management team clearly is absolutely a, 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 a essential criteria for choosing a company to put in the portfolio. And I think it's worth saying just in the last 12 months, actually, management teams, I think, have been tested as never before in the AIM, uh, in the AIM market in terms of having to cope with the, uh, all, all the problems have been of supply chains, of of uh, rising costs of uh, difficult consumer spending scene and, and all that. So I think chickens have come home to roost and actually really interesting to see how, how business models, which look quite, quite healthy 18 months ago, are suddenly looking not so healthy now. So that all comes back to being able to uh, you know, judge the management team, judge the, the cash flow generation and to what extent the goods and services that these companies produce are required at, at this moment in time. I guess something you all share is that focus on management teams that also have skin in the game. They have a stake in the management, stake in the company. Yeah. Is, that, is that a defining feature for AIM compared with, say, the main market? Do you find more? Well, the average FTSE company has a management of less than, I think it's 0.1 in, in skin in the game, and the average AIM portfolio is you know, near a 10. So um, I, I certainly in our portfolio, it's, it's, it's 14, and I think Stephen mentioned it's around about that for his. So... Uh, yeah, it is a huge differential skin in the game between AIM and the main market. And Steve, how risky is investing in companies on AIM? Has it become more risky in the, in the recent environment? I think it was ever thus. Uh, risky is live. AIM is a high risk market by definition, but you're not impotent in mitigating the risks on AIM. So we, we've spoken, all three of us already, in certain um fundamental things that we look for that that's a key part of it um that cash generation is a key underpinning of it the actual business model itself what to look for as the tide's gone out with this free money experiment and zero rate of interest you're seeing uh marginal business models where the unit economics uh just didn't stack up they were selling 20 pound notes for 10 pounds you can explode your top line doing that and also explode your losses at the same time 
there's the old aphorism that what I lose on every sale, I'll make up for in volumes. And that's kind of where we were at QE days. I think this decade now uh, is going to be very, very different. And the market is now much more discerning than perhaps it ever has been. Great for us as stock pickers because the, the, the good get thrown out with a bad in these inclement times that we're going through. Um, so when you talk about risk, I think the most attendant risk we've had to cope with is valuation risk for a long, long time. Less so perhaps the three of us because we've got a, a more go-anywhere ability on AIM. We can go down the market cap spectrum or up the market cap spectrum. We're not forced buyers of the biggest companies because the biggest companies on AIM did get maybe a little bit carried away where the price earnings ratios became elevated. And if you were investing the bulk of your portfolio in very expensive stocks, you were essentially one trade which was trading like a long bond you were very sensitive to interest rates ever going up and that valuation risk now has come home to roost for some of these companies uh, that's rebased and reset levels i think from today it looks very very attractive on a three to five year view um but as i say there has to be a degree of risk this is a very generous tax giveaway so there has to be risk um yeah. and that's that's why you get that benefit but control for the junk with an aim and with a diversified portfolio, uh, you can mitigate a lot of those risks. And Jay, do you agree with that? I guess some risk being taken off the table, but perhaps other risks, rising costs, rising interest rates, is that adding risk to, to AIM companies? Oh, absolutely. Um, if they're already loss-making, and there are more loss-makers on AIM, and if, if you're facing more cost pressures and you're also facing demand pressures, uh, then that's going, that, has a, that has a nasty combination. So you need to make sure that the, the companies you're invested in have, have recurring, repeatable revenues that aren't linked or not, aren't heavily linked to consumer demand. Mm. Uh, and you need to make sure that they have pricing power so they can pass, that they can pass those cost increases they're seeing on. Um, they are few and, those sorts of companies are few and far between. So you have to be very selective. Um, but you have over 800 companies to choose from on AIM. You only need to find 30 to 35. Very true, very true. And Chris, we've seen stock markets become more volatile through 2022. Are there certain parts of the A market that are more deeply affected than others? Yes, I mean, the AIM is, is quite diversified, the AIM market among the 800 or so companies. It, it, they cover all, all sectors. I mean, going through the history of AIM, there have been times when it's been very focused on technology during the, the, the tech boom and bust of around 2000, it, over 30% of AIM was focused on technology in, in, at that time. Equally, there was another, a few years later, it was very focused on the mining companies, about 30, got up to about 30% in, invested in mining. But now it's actually much, much more equally spread among the sectors, which I, I, I think is, is very healthy. But um, it's certainly been susceptible to flows of money coming out of small caps this year. If you look at the figures, um, uh, there has been record amounts of money taken out of the UK uh, small cap sector uh, over this year to date. And, and that has meant that a lot of stocks have, have come down, although the earnings have held up uh, relatively well. In fact, sometimes the earnings have actually gone up. And more than people were expected, but still the stock has, has come down re quite dramatically because people have been wanting to sell good stocks mm. to raise liquidity. And is, Stephen, is there more pain to come? Are we still in a recession? You tell me, John. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are. Uh, okay. Economics is known as the dismal science for a reason. I say that uh, holding a degree in economics. Um, 
great thing about being a successful fund manager is you don't need a degree in economics. You don't need to be able to tell the future. Um, and in fact, the, the more you distance yourself from the economic machinations, particularly at the moment, the better. There has been undoubtedly a sentiment shift. The good thing about the stock market it is a discounting mechanism. It tends to look six to nine months ahead. It will have troughed well before the data has actually troughed. And with recessions, a lot of the time, you don't actually know you're in one until six to nine or 12 months after you've actually come out of one. Sometimes it's years after because the data gets revised so heavily. So the good thing about the stock market, though, it, it isn't the economy. Um, you know, we, we've had very, very low growth since 2010, uh, yet the stock markets generally have done very, very well because of QE and ultra low interest rates. So there's many more things that will drive a share price than mere economic growth. What I would say is it's created pockets of opportunity. This known unknown, which is a slowdown, people tend to overreact on the downside, which then sets the value today for those that are maybe brave to get in earlier, but not necessarily that brave. As long as you are taking calculated uh, investment decisions and they have a fortress balance sheet, they'll be able to trade themselves out of it. And your entry price today should deliver you very attractive returns over the next three to five years. So that's a very good point then. If we look to the future, you know, given we have seen some falls within the A market this year, um, are there any outstanding areas of the A market that you think look particularly attractive right now? I guess if we just start with you, Joe, and then go around the table. Yeah, that's kind of you. Um, so <laughs> I think the most attractive area for us is, is B2B software. So Stephen used the term earlier. Uh, those products are often mission critical. They, they keep the lights on for their customers. Uh, so they, they don't typically face the same shifts in demand. Uh, we're also seeing sort of the trends in digital transformation carry on. So we think that those businesses which are allowing greater efficiencies within their customers, they, they are potentially still interesting. That the, 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 um, the issue with valuations is it's compressed the valuations across the technology sector. Yeah. And so the B2C tech players have fallen as well as the B2B tech players. So the valuations have come down. The other side of the coin is a lot of those businesses have actually still delivered or the beat expectations in the last six months. And the market is just overlooking those beats. Uh, so we're seeing some quite attractive opportunities in B2B software and those sort of structural growth mm. pockets within that, within that sub-segment. So perhaps some, some areas where there's been some, some share price weakness, but actually the operating performance is still holding up pretty strong. Yes, and, and, com and yeah. companies are still spending on digital transformation. That, that's not being switched off. And mm. I think with, with unemployment rates at 3.5%, you need to find ways of operating a workforce more efficiently or, or automating some, some elements. So the, the trends there are still very much in play. And Chris, any areas you find most attractive at the moment? Well, I, to just broaden that question out a bit, I, I think AIM offers um, the opportunity for investors to invest in UK growth that they just simply don't get mm. in the larger markets, particularly the FTSE 100, but also the FTSE 250. And uh, because of the, certainly there have been economic challenges over the last 18 months, but actually that creates fantastic opportunities for the right companies that are in the right niches to be able to help, um, um, particularly through digitalization is, is obviously a key area, which there are lots of companies on aim heavily into digitalization and being able to reduce a company's costs or help with their marketing or bring in new customers, whatever it is. Uh, and so I'm extremely optimistic for, for AIM going forward. I think it, it, it just gives uh, investors an opportunity they don't get in the wider market. Mm. 
Very interesting. I'd agree. Uh, Stephen, any any areas you're finding most interesting at present? Uh, so we have a foot in both camps. So growth at a reasonable price. Um, it's, it's been growth at any price for a lot of other investors, but it is now much more reasonable price. But we also have a value bucket as well. Mm. Around a third of the portfolio will be in value type. So that could be special situations, turnarounds, or cyclicals. And focusing on the latter, you look at cyclicals versus defensive and how they've performed over the last two years. And the underperformance of cyclicals versus defensive now it is getting historically large. These points are generally turning points where you start to see tremendous outperformance of cyclicals over defensives. Within that, I think industrials, of which there's a large number of world-class industrial companies listed on AIM. They're actually market leaders in their various niches, but the class is industrials. Ergo, they must be cyclical. And if we're going into a downturn, I don't want to touch them. But therein lies the opportunity. And so we're seeing tremendous upside now potential in industrials, especially because the zeitgeist has moved from monetary stimulus to fiscal stim- stimulus. Mm. And the cohort industry that benefits the most from fiscal stimulus tends to be industrials. Um, and if, you, if, if this is an analog of the 70s, where we go into stagflation and higher inflation, uh, the second and third best performing sectors in Europe and the UK, the second was software. So absolutely, it's one of our biggest sectors is B2B software for the, for the reasons Joe very well articulated. Second best performer, uh, sorry, the third best performer behind software was industrials. They tend to do very well in a more inflationary backdrop, believe it or not. The top performing sector is energy, uh, but that's not a sector that appeals to us as AMIHT investors. So to finally, to sum up then, why should investors consider investing in AIM and then by extension, an AIM inheritance tax portfolio service? Joe, you're first up for this one. Uh, so I think owner alignment You've got some very impressive chief execs, and we all, we all see them regularly. There are some very impressive people, and they have meaningful stakes in their businesses, and they, they genuinely, you're, you're in a partnership with them. And there are a number who have delivered outstanding returns, and it's about finding those, 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 those next senior leaders. Um, in terms of why, why an AMIHT portfolio service, I think valuations are, are depressed now. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK is likely to see M&A. It's been a bit slower to come through than I thought. I think because private equity are facing into higher interest rates, it's probably slowed some of the M&A deals that would that, that could have come through this year. So hopefully that will come through in 2023, perhaps or perhaps later. But I think that's a, a latent catalyst for AIM. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a really attract, it's a really attractive area. It's uh, Growth is hard to come by. Um, and, and AIM will... It's a, it's a leader in its area in terms of, in terms of a global stock market mm-hmm. for, for small caps. So I think it's a, it's a really attractive place to be in a, in a 40% IHT saving potentially. So yeah, it's attractive. Very true. And Chris? Well, <clears throat> I, I think uh, as an investor in AIM, it's like, um, to some extent, like a child going into a sweetie shop. You have got so much to choose from uh, in a way that you haven't in, in the larger companies. And uh, often these companies are are very early stage, so you've got to be uh, incredibly selective uh, in what what, what you go for. I mean, just to give you an example, if you wanted to invest in alternative energy, there are 12 companies listed on AIM under the alternative energy uh, heading. There are absolutely none in the FTSE 250 or or the 
bankruptcy hundreds. So, you know, you get these niche, not only companies, but niche industries that basically are nurtured on AIM before they probably go up to the main board. Um, and in terms of the uh, IHT, very much sort of caveat emptor. We, you know, we, you've got to be really careful what you what you buy. You've got to go with, you know, professionals who who look at these companies day in day out. Uh, it's a very dangerous place to do it on your own. Uh, perhaps you would say I would say that, but <laughs> it, it, you can certainly you can make a lot, but you can lose a lot too. So uh, be careful what you invest in. But uh, if you do your homework and uh, you're in the right stocks. Uh, I, I think the future bodes well. And Stephen, you get to sum up. On Joel's point, I mean, we never buy a company think it's going to get taken over, but it's great. You can see consolidation happening in industry. And a recent survey, private equity houses, 90% of them said the UK was the number one market now that they're targeting. Bank of America put data out that normally 2% of the mid-cap is gobbled up by M&A in every, any one year. Once sterling falls 10% or more, that jumps to 5% mm. of companies getting taken over. So I do think there's a, a tsunami of takeovers coming. UK is at a discount to global peers. Within that, small caps are at a discount to their large caps. So you've got a double discount for UK small caps, of which AIM uh, is one of them. And also a, a bit more of a wider point to finish up on, I think we've got a tremendous structural advantage as AMIHT investors over open-ended weak fund managers. Our capital is quasi-permanent. You know, it tends to stick with us until the client dies, but that's only one client of thousands, perhaps underlying that. So we're tremendous long-term supporters of these AIM businesses. Uh, we're not dictated by the whims of a retail investor who panics at the wrong time. So you've seen... $18 billion equivalent yanked out of UK equity funds weeks this year, yeah. which has been a tremendous headwind. One fund manager was complaining that those stocks that are held widely by us have held up a lot better because we're not subject to the same whims of a retail investor. The money is there for a different reason, for IHT reasons, but I think structurally that allows us, it allows me to target maybe less liquid names whereas the OITs would love to own it, but they need a measure of liquidity. So even if it's the best company in the world, if it's not liquid enough mm -hmm. for them, uh, they have to shun it. Whereas for us, we can take a different view. Liquidity is not a problem as if you're getting rewarded for it, and as long as you are getting rewarded for it. On AIM, I think you amply get rewarded for that liquidity premium. That sounds like a good place to end our roundtable discussion. Chris, Stephen and Joe, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.